Well, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, or it's also, for those of you here in the broom, uh, it's the handout that I provided for you. I told uh, Randy after the first service that after a prayer like that, I'm not really sure we need a sermon. <laughs> and if you came in a little bit late today, just as uh, I mentioned, uh, Steve is not with us. He was uh, supposed to preach this morning, had close contact with a COVID positive patient, and so he's quarantining. So as of yesterday afternoon, uh, was looking deep into the sermon files. That's one of the blessings of being in one place for 12 years or so. As you can go deep into the sermon file, nobody's going to remember what you preached way back when. So as I was doing that yesterday, just starting to think about uh, what we might look at today, Elder Furatani actually texted me. He said, I don't know if you want this or not, but here's one of my favorite sermons of yours. And it was actually from the very book that I was looking at uh, as a potential uh, sermon. And so... I ended up going with what he was remembering and looked at it yesterday and thought, man, this was a horrible sermon. And so spent yesterday afternoon and evening reworking it such that Elder Furtani is not going to recognize it today. We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. We're going to be focusing primarily on verses 6 through 12. Excuse me, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 and we'll focus on uh, verses 6 through 12. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man. Nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we come to this portion of your word, we would pray for the same Holy Spirit who caused Paul to write these words to be at work in our midst right now. Pray that you would help us to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. And in particular, Father, we pray that you would help us to see the glory and majesty of the gospel of your grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And may that gospel cause our hearts to sing with joy and with thanksgiving. 
We pray you would do this for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Well, when was the last time that you got worked up about something? I mean, really worked up about something. Now, as I was thinking about that yesterday, just the phrase caught my mind, and I thought, it's actually kind of a weird phrase if you think about it, getting worked up about something, getting worked up about something. And I thought, maybe that's just slang. Maybe it's some kind of informal phrase that we've created that's kind of come into our language. But I looked it up, and the phrase is actually in the official dictionaries. The Cambridge Dictionary says to get worked up is to get upset or very excited about something. That's what we mean when we're getting worked up, we're getting excited, we're getting upset. Something really upsets us and we get worked up about it. But I even liked better the Urban Dictionary definition. Getting worked up means anticipating an outcome to bring release of built-up, simmering, juicy, and delicious, stirring emotions. That's getting worked up. Now, it seems like just about everybody is easily worked up about things these days, regardless of whether they're significant or not. A friend mentioned to me recently, almost every difference between people is an occasion for war. Now, to be true, there are definitely some things that are worthy of getting worked up about. In fact, there are things that are absolutely necessary for us to get worked up about. And Paul is worked up about one of those things in these verses. You can tell he's worked up just by noticing a couple things. If you're familiar at all with Paul's writing of letters, then you know that as we read the first part of Galatians 1, this both sounds a little bit like his usual letter writing and also something very different. It begins with a greeting. uh, Paul identifying himself and also who he's writing to. And that's very common for Paul's letters. He would begin that way many times. But what's different here is that Paul normally then, after the greeting, would move into a time of thanksgiving. Of offering thanksgiving to God for how God's at work in the lives of the people that he's writing to. Uh, Thanksgiving to the people for the way that they are expressing their Christian faith uh, in ways that they're ministering to one another and to others around them. But notice, Paul doesn't do that here. He, he, he begins with the greeting and then he launches right in. In fact, you notice what he says in verse 6. I am astonished, he says. Now that word in the Greek can have both positive and negative connotations. Positively, it can mean, I am, I am just marveling. I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with, with how well things are going for you. That can have a positive. I'm, I'm astonished at how well things are. Have a positive connotation. But here, Paul's not being positive. Here, Paul is using the word negatively. And when the word is used negatively in the Greek, it means deeply disturbed. Greatly troubled. Paul is saying, I am deeply disturbed by what is happening amongst you. And you can see that 
he communicates that he's worked up also by looking at the end of verses 8 and 9. He twice calls down curses on people. Paul is definitely worked up about something. Something is deeply troubling him. Something is very serious in Paul's mind. And it's something that we should get worked up about as well. So what I want us to do today is is looking at this passage, I want us to look and see what Paul was so worked up about and then why he was so worked up about it. And then we'll finish by thinking about this thing that he's so worked up about. What happens when it gets worked out correctly? So first of all, what was Paul so worked up about? Well, you can see in verse 6, he tells it to them very plainly. I am astonished, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Here is what Paul is so worked up about. The people that he was writing to were turning to a different gospel. They were deserting Jesus and they were believing and following a different gospel. The word gospel shows up in these verses at least seven times, literally in in being alluded to. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Paul is concerned about the gospel. That's That's what he is so worked up about. He's worked up about the fact that they are turning away from the true gospel. And turning their hearts toward a different gospel. Paul even mentions a couple ways that that can happen in verses 8 and 9. Now perhaps this is actually what was happening in these churches. Or perhaps it's just Paul describing how people can turn away from the true gospel and begin following a different gospel. Verse 8 he says... Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And Paul almost has a sense that the people who are reading this for the first time might think he's just being overly dramatic. That he's hastily just blurting out these words. And so he says it again in verse 9. Lest you think that I don't know what I'm saying, look, I'm going to say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Notice here he gives us a couple examples that that can happen. The first one he mentions is an angel coming down from heaven. Can you imagine? I mean, what Paul is wanting these people to do is actually to imagine this happening. Can you imagine this happening? An angel coming down out of heaven and sitting in your family room. Imagine that. Imagine the experience that would be for you. Imagine the feelings that it would conjure up that an angel is sitting in your family room and giving you some kind of truth. Paul says that if an angel comes down out of heaven and if he were to speak an untrue gospel to you, he should be accursed. That's one of the ways that people can slip into following a different gospel is they rely on their experiences. They rely on their feelings. And Paul's saying that can betray us. There's another way here that people sometimes believe and follow a different gospel. He says, not just if an angel comes down, but he says, even if we preach to you a a wrong gospel. Now, who is the we? Well, certainly Paul's including himself. He's thinking about the leaders of the church. He's thinking about the apostles. He's thinking about the church authorities. He thinks the tradition of the church. 
Paul's saying even if we were to preach a gospel to you that is different than the one true gospel, then we should be accursed. That's a second way that people can slip into following a different gospel. We can simply just go along with church leaders and authorities and the tradition of the church, even if they teach us a wrong gospel. Now, there are probably lots of ways that we can be led astray. But the point is, what Paul is saying here is that he is worked up about the fact that these Christians that he is writing to were turning to a different gospel. That's what he's worked up about. But why? Why is he so worked up about that? I mean, one of the things that we talk about here uh, within our church family is that we come from lots of different backgrounds and church backgrounds, and we, we agree on the, the core things, but there are a lot of things that we disagree about, uh, even good things and important things that we disagree about. There are differences of beliefs and convictions about things like baptism and uh, the best schooling options for our children, worship style preferences, political convictions. And we talk about how those differences about those kinds of things uh, are allowable, but they should never cause division or separation among God's people. But Paul here is saying here is something that is a non-negotiable. Here is something that is of a greater importance than even those important things. For Paul, the gospel itself was at stake. The very essence of the Christian faith was on line, was, a, was on the line. That's why Paul is so worked up. And notice what he says at the end of verse 6 and beginning of verse 7. He, he says they are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, he says. Literally there in the Greek it says a different gospel which not one. <laughs> Literally, what it means is another gospel that isn't another gospel. That's why Paul is so worked up. He knows that to distort, to change the true gospel, even a little bit, means that you lose the gospel completely. It is a non-negotiable. It is not something that we can agree to disagree on. Paul, in verse 7, says that the people that were teaching these things were distorting the gospel. That word in the Greek means to alter or to reverse or to turn into the opposite or to turn inside out. The people who were in the midst of these people who were teaching a different gospel, it was no gospel at all. That's why Paul is so worked up. They were taking the true gospel and they weren't just adjusting it a little bit to try to re-motivate people. They were turning the gospel inside out. What was that false gospel? What was that different gospel that was being preached? Well, that's actually what Paul's addressing in this entire letter. We don't have time to go into all the details of it this morning. But you can see, even if you just scan the end of chapter 2 and look into chapters 3 and 4, that this different gospel that they were being taught and that they were turning toward was the gospel of Jesus plus. Belief and faith in Jesus was necessary, but it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't enough. What gained your acceptance with God, what gained you eternal life, was belief and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and being obedient, following the law, living a good life. For Paul, that change 
meant that what was being declared was no gospel at all. It was not good news. It was not God's grace. It was turning the gospel on its head. It was turning the gospel inside out. It was reversing the gospel. What is the true gospel of Jesus Christ? What is given to us in both the Old and the New Testaments of the Bible? That we are accepted by God. That we have eternal life. That we've been adopted into God's family. That we are given an eternal inheritance. That our sins are forgiven. And we are declared righteous in the sight of God only through faith. In the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not because of our good works. It is not because we live a good life. It is not by doing more good things than bad things in life. It is not by my faithfulness. It is an act of God's free grace. Our sins are put on Christ. And Jesus' righteousness is credited to our accounts. All and only because of Jesus' completed work on the cross. To put it in theological terms, our sanctification, our holiness, our obedience is based on our justification, our being declared righteous in God's sight because of Christ. And you can't reverse the order. This different gospel, this false gospel is reversing the order, our Our standing with God, our acceptance with God, our justification is based on our sanctification, our holiness, our obedience. You can understand why Paul says in verse 7 that these people that were teaching this false gospel were causing trouble, he says. The the, the Galatians that he's writing to were troubled because of, of this false gospel that's being taught that they are starting to turn toward. The word troubled means Causing movement by shaking. It is to stir up, to cause inward turmoil, to throw into confusion. The gospel of grace was being distorted. It was being turned inside out. And it was throwing these Christians into confusion and turmoil. I saw this illustrated in a very painful way when we lived in Columbus, Ohio. The church that we were attending back then uh, brought in a fairly well-known speaker for a weekend conference at the church. And uh, one of the nights of the conference, it was a Friday night or a Saturday night, the speaker uh, was speaking to to the group in the church and he was basically articulating this false gospel that the Galatian Christians were falling into, Jesus plus Jesus' work on the cross isn't quite enough. It also requires your faithfulness, your obedience, your holiness in order to be declared and accepted righteous in God's sight. And after he got done with his lecture, I remember the room. I remember where we were sitting. In several rows in front of us, there was this young lady And she had been listening to what this man had been saying. She had been tracking with what he was saying. And she raised her hand when it was time for questions. And with tears coming down her eyes, she asked this question. How will I know when I've done enough? The speaker fumbled around with his words, but he didn't have an answer for her. That's what happens. When we distort the gospel of grace, even just a little bit, it turns it inside out 
And it causes turmoil for God's people. A painful, powerful example of the gospel being distorted and God's people being thrown into confusion. I want you to recognize that Paul here is writing to Christians. Paul's Paul's writing to God's people. He's writing to Christians who had started to go along with this distorted gospel. And it's a reminder to all of us, even as God's people, that the human heart is bent toward not believing that our acceptance is based fully on God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. The human heart is bent toward a belief that it must be Jesus plus. Plus my obedience, plus my faithfulness, plus my genuine efforts. And it is so easy for us to distort the gospel. And the result is we end up troubled and thrown into confusion. The gospel of Jesus plus leads to insecurity. Just like that young lady hearing that, that false gospel being taught. We'll never know when we've done enough. We'll never have assurance. And insecurity often leads to pride, fear, envy, and almost always being spiritually and physically worn out. Paul knew that the Christians in these churches needed to be reminded of the true gospel of grace, and we do as well. I had this driven home to me recently. I was talking to someone within our church family, someone who's dealing with some particularly challenging and difficult hardships in life right now. And this person was pleading with me, pleading with me to continue preaching the gospel every week. This person said that they desperately needed to hear it every Sunday because there was so much around them, so much within their own hearts that is yelling a false gospel to us all the time. And our hearts are so easy to distort the true gospel of grace. This person understood how important it is that we would be bombarded with the true gospel of God's grace and mercy. I hope I hope that you can understand why Paul is so worked up about this. Why we must be so concerned that the true gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ never be distorted, never be changed, never be adjusted, not even a little bit. Not by teachers or church authorities, not even by our own experiences and feelings. So that's what Paul was worked up about and that's why Paul was so worked up. But let's finish by thinking about what happens with when what Paul was worked up about is worked out correctly. What, what are the good effects, the results of, of turning away from the false gospels of our culture and in our own hearts? We could spend the rest of the afternoon meditating on that. But let me just mention two as we finish. One of the effects, one of the results of turning away from the false different gospel and, 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 and turning away from the distorted gospel of God's grace and embracing the true gospel is that we have freedom from the penalty and the power of sin. Just a couple chapters later in chapter 3, Paul will write to the Galatian Christians in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
This is what the true gospel teaches. That Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. When Jesus went to the the cross, the curse that we deserve to get was put on him. The penalty that we deserve to pay was put on Christ. And with his death and his resurrection, he paid for it in full. That means that the penalty of our sin has been taken care of forever. There is nothing left for us to pay ever. And not only have we had our sins paid for, the penalty canceled, but we've been declared righteous. The curse has been removed. So we see that we have freedom from the penalty of this of our sin. But notice we also have freedom from the power of our sin. Paul was writing another letter to another group of Christians, Christians that were in the city of Rome. And in Romans chapter six, verse 14, Paul says, sin will not have dominion over you since you are under law, not under law, but under grace. That is so important for us to remember. It's vitally important for Christians to remember. The power of sin has been canceled over you. It's important for us to remember because so often, especially with our besetting sins, we actually feel the opposite is true. We feel like we're under the power of sin, that we can't, we can't not do it. But what Paul is telling us in Romans 6 is that there is no power and dominion of sin over us anymore if we are in Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin. And so we shouldn't act like we are. Paul even mentions an example of this in verse 10 back in Galatians 1. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, it seems like Paul was being accused... Of, of speaking out of both sides of his mouth. That when he went to go speak to one group of people, he would say one thing, but he would change it in order to be accepted by a different group of people when he spoke to them. And what Paul is saying is, that's absolutely ridiculous. If I was seeking to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. But the, the power of sin no longer has power over me. And so no longer do I have to seek the approval of man, Paul is saying. If I have God's approval secured forever, what more do I need? I'm no longer a slave to the opinion of others. Now that's true for all of our sins, brothers and sisters in Christ. Addiction to pornography, envy, fear, anger, idols, whatever they might be. You've been freed from the power of those things over you. If you're in Christ, none of those things have dominion over you anymore. And so we shouldn't live like they do. We shouldn't have a mindset of defeat. That it's simply inevitable that I'm going to give in to sin once again. And to have no hope. The death and the resurrection of Jesus has broken the power of sin over us. And it no longer has dominion over us. Do you see why the gospel is so important? It is only in the Christian gospel that we get freedom from the penalty of our sins and freedom from the power of sin. And when we distort it even a little bit, the penalty and the power of our sin still binds us. 
A second thing, not just do we have the freedom from the penalty and power of sin, but we also have deliverance from the present evil age. You notice that Paul uses those words in verses 3 and 4. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Jesus, he says, gave himself to pay for our sins. He canceled the penalty and the power of our sin. And now he delivers us from the present evil age. Now, if you've been with us when we were studying the book of Revelation a little while ago, you know that that word age that's used here uh, by Paul is as it's used in the New Testament. It's used to refer the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. In other words, the time that the Galatians were living and the time that we're living here now. One of the impacts, one of the effects of the true gospel is that we are delivered from the present evil age. How so? Well, the present evil age teaches a lot of false gospels. And we've been delivered from them. One of the false gospels that the present evil age teaches is that what will give us security in this life is financial security. That's a false gospel. And you've been freed from that because of the true gospel. Another false gospel of this present age is that you need the approval of others. That you should be, that what should drive you is, is having other people like you and having the approval of others. That's a false gospel of this present age. And you've been freed from that because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another false gospel of this present age is that politics will be our savior. That's a false gospel. And you have been freed from that by the true gospel of King Jesus. This present evil age teaches us that this world is all that matters. That our contentment and that our satisfaction in this life are the most important thing. Ease of life and peace and comfort are what's the most important thing for us to pursue. That's a false gospel of this present age. We know because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is not our ultimate home. We are citizens first of another kingdom, the kingdom of God. Our hope is not in this life being easy or peaceful or comfortable. Our hope is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This current evil age seems to be teaching us that we should all be angry all the time about everything. The gospel frees us up from that kind of an angry life. Yes, there are things that God's people should be angry about. There is a righteous and godly anger, and it is rightly directed at the things that God instructs us to be angry about. But the gospel of grace frees us up from being constantly on edge, constantly angry about every possible thing that we disagree with. The gospel delivers us from these things. It frees us from being slaves to these false gospels. I have a friend who was a campus pastor with Reform University Fellowship at the University of Mississippi a number of years ago. Eighteen years ago this week, this coming week, they 
had an absolutely horrific tragedy strike the campus and the RUF group there. A young lady by the name of Laura Trependall, who was an Ole Miss student as well as a member of the RUF group, was killed by a drunk driver. She was driving her small Honda car when she was hit, hit head-on by a Chevy Tahoe that was being driven by a young man named Greg Gibbs. His blood alcohol content was twice the legal limit. You can imagine the devastation to her family and to her friends, to the RUF work, and to the entire Ole Miss community. The court case played itself out uh, over a year and a half. The entire community followed, followed as, it, as it dragged along. Eventually, the young man in the car, Greg, was charged and convicted of vehicular homicide, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison with nine of those years being suspended so that he would only serve one year in jail. Now, you might be thinking, that seems a little lenient. But you need to know a little bit about the rest of the story. At the sentencing, Laura's family and friends showed up to support Greg. The judge, as he, as Greg stood up and faced the judge to get his sentence, the judge began by saying these words. In all my years of practicing law, I don't think I've ever seen an outpouring, outpouring of love and support for someone like I've seen for the defendant, Greg Gibbs. The judge went on to explain that he had received over 200 letters on Greg's behalf written by Laura's family and friends. Letters that testified to Greg's character and that he was not the kind of person that the judge should just throw in jail and throw away the key. The judge said that there were two of those 200 letters, more than 200 letters that stood out in particular. One from Laura's father and the other from Laura's boyfriend, a, a young man named Dallas. Both of those letters said essentially the same thing. They said something like this. If Greg has to pay a debt to society, then so be it. But as far as our hearts are concerned, don't punish him because you think we have any vindictiveness toward him because we have none. We have forgiven him and we hold nothing against him. Right after the sentencing took place, the judge called the boyfriend Dallas and my pastor friend back into the judge's chambers. And as Dallas and my friend walked into the judge's chambers, there was Greg. It was the first time that Dallas and Greg had seen each other face to face. They sat down at a table across from one another. And as they did, Greg began to just weep uncontrollably. Dallas reached across the table and took Greg's hand and he looked him in the eye and he said this, I don't have an ounce of anger or hate against you, not an ounce. And I don't know if I can explain that except that God has taken it away from me. Dallas went on to explain that he was a Christian, that he believed in the gospel of grace and that he understood having the anger, the wrath of God toward him because of his sin being removed because of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he was simply trying 
to live that out with Greg. How do you explain something like that? There's no human explanation for that. The only explanation is the power of the Holy Spirit working through the gospel of grace. That's how important the gospel is. Any distortion of it reverses it, flips it upside down, turns it inside out, and throws people into confusion. That's why Paul is so worked up. And the gospel of God's grace that we've experienced is definitely worthy of us being worked up about it as well. Let's pray together. Father, as I confess, I confess that as I think about what that moment must have been like in that judge's chamber, I don't know that I could respond the same way. I pray that your gospel of free grace would so enwrap my heart and the hearts of all of your people that we would love you and that we would know you and serve you and that we would go out with a great joy to extend your grace and mercy to everyone we come in contact with. Help us, Father, because we are, we are weak. Our faith is weak. Our strength is weak. But you are strong. As we meditate on the penalty of our sin being canceled, being paid for, the power of sin no longer having dominion over us, we pray that we would go out and be freed up to live like who we are and that you would enable us to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.